You might not have put two and two together or realize that this podcast, it's actually produced by a nonprofit, listener-supported Wyoming Public Media. We're just a little old station housed in a basement on the beautiful University of Wyoming campus. We aren't getting paid big bucks as a for-profit business. No siree, we're making this podcast not for money, but because everyone on our team believes in what we do, telling the missing stories of the real American West. But that means we rely on people like you. If you make sure to download every episode as soon as it comes out, or have been telling all your friends what a big Modern West fan you are, or would be seriously bummed if we disappeared from your feed, If all that describes you, I wonder if you'd take a quick minute to do something for me. Get into your browser and search for themodernwest.org and find the donate button. It doesn't matter how much you commit to, $5 or $100. It just matters that you show us that you want us to keep telling these stories. My recommendation? Pause this episode and do it real quick before you forget at themodernwest.org. Just a heads up, there is some swearing in this episode that might not be great for some people's ears. Old highway sign, point straight ahead. Welcome to the modern way. A few years back, some good friends from grad school came to visit me in Laramie. They were from the Midwest and excited to see a real Western town. We hit up the thrift stores for authentic well-worn cowgirl boots and pearl button shirts. And then I remember driving along and one of them pointing out a cowboy walking down the street in his hat and boots and belt buckle. She asked me if the guy was just dressed up like that or if there was still such a thing as working cowboys. Made me realize that to the rest of the country, ranching is going extinct, an artifact from a bygone era. And folks have pretty good reasons for thinking that. Scotty Ratliff is a former Wyoming lawmaker, but he's also Eastern Shoshone and grew up cowboying on the Wind River Reservation. I talked to him at his home in Riverton. We didn't have TV. We didn't have electricity. We had to haul our water. That's just what kids did. But during the day, we we were cow people. We did the things he had to do in order to make cows be a productive something. He says back in those days, ranchers endured the poverty and the loneliness because they loved being on horseback and working outdoors. The romanticness of of ranch, you know, is probably what keeps people going and probably what, you know, what doesn't keep them there because it don't turn out to be that, that romantic. It's hard work. These days, Scotty says the cowboy is an endangered species. There's very few people today that want to make a career as a rancher. There's a few people that'll hire on in the summertime to be a ranch hand or, you know, they'll help ride, day ride or something. But it's not their, it's not their career. It's not their life's ambition. You know, they they like horses and a lot of people like horses and a lot of people like cows, but, but To make that your vocation, you know, is a fading thing. I've seen this up close and personal. Our old family friend, Jake Heflin, made the rodeo his vocation. And Jim Elliott never doubted once that he wanted to be a cowboy. 
but that was decades ago. Judy Elliott admitted it took a lot of propping up to keep it alive. Well, it's harder to make a living now as a cowboy. And, you know, you're lucky if you find a good job and that they take care of you. But, you know, the hardest part, I think, and, and I've talked to an old cowboy about this. I never even thought about it because all the time we lived at the Grizzly, you, as a hired person, you are living in their home, right? And you're, yeah, and, and they're more or less paying your rent, right? But if you do that for 20 years, you know, you haven't built up any equity or anything. And so when you're, when it's over, it's over. And that's what happened with us at the Grizzly. You know, we, when it was over, it was over. And we were lucky that we had a little cash and we put that money down on, on you know, it's not very big, not, right. but it's big enough. The cowboy is riding off into the sunset and the question we've been asking all along is why we should care if he never returns. Author Wallace Stegner would have been fine with his extinction. Why hasn't the stereotype faded away as real cowboys became less and less visible in Western life? Because we can't or won't do without it, obviously. But also there is the visible, pervasive fact of Western space, which acts as a preservative. Our arid landscapes preserve every track in the sand. You can still see the tracks of wagon trains on the Overland Trail. If that's not a vivid reminder that history still affects who we are, then I don't know what is. So what if we don't flatten the cowboy into a myth of a solitary man on a horse, and instead take a more nuanced look? Then maybe the rancher won't go extinct. From Wyoming Public Media and PRX, this is the Modern West, exploring the evolving identity of the American West. I'm Melody Edwards. Remember back in episode two of this season, the one called Se Beneficien de Ea? We learned about the history of the cowboy and how it originated with the Mexican vaquero. We met the Abeda family, who'd been sheep ranching in the San Luis Valley of Southern Colorado for seven generations. It hasn't been easy for the Abedas, though. Bad prices at the market, attacks by environmentalists, racism by the government. If anyone was going to quit, the Abedas would have had good reason to. But the Abedas, they aren't quitters. Instead, they've adapted to a changing world. A few years back, my good friend Aaron Abeda got hoodwinked into a job he never thought he'd agree to. Well, and so that brings me to this question of how you ended up the mayor of your town. I was was tricked. (laughs) Tricked because the town was facing an existential dilemma, and they needed a leader. They started hauling uh, radioactive waste through Antonito Mm. without public process. Literally started putting nuclear waste on the back of flatbed trucks, bringing it to the outskirts of Antonito and loading it on these nuclear gondolas. And those nuclear gondolas carried the waste across Colorado and Wyoming to bury it in Utah's desert. But it was being loaded here, right next to the town's water source. The previous mayor led the charge to sue the U.S. Department of Energy, the railroad, and Los Alamos to stop them from loading the nuclear waste in Antonito. 
But in the middle of the fight, that mayor was termed out and couldn't run again. It seemed like the other people that were running for mayor didn't really care. That's just my opinion. And they weren't from here. Honestly, they lived here, but they they were recent transplants. And uh, I think people want to be mayor for ego reasons and not love reasons. And I'm not trying to toot my own horn, but I wanted to do it to protect my community. I've known Aaron a lot of years, and that's one thing you can count on. He does things for love reasons. Once again, an Abeda family member took on the federal government and corporations to save his community's way of life. But these cases are seldom simple. Did you win that, those cases? Oh, win is such, a, <laughs> such an elusive thing. Yeah. Um, they're not hauling nuclear waste through Colorado anymore. We definitely entered into a very long-term agreement that they're not allowed to bring nuclear waste through Antonito anymore. But we didn't go to court, and maybe we should have, because as soon as they left us, they moved the nuclear waste to the Navajo Nation. And so they started hauling it from there. So they just found another community that may or may not fight back. I don't know. I don't know what happened after that. Fighting for community in the West? We could dream about a time when that's no longer necessary, but in Antonito, it's a way of life. Antonito. Here at the edge of the Llano, where the grass begins like a migrant pulse thumping in the wind every April, the town becomes somebody's prayer, waiting for a candle to be lit. There are places to begin, although everything revolves back toward us. A woman I know, lost her son, believes that he has become a star that looks over her. And I suppose this is enough. The need to always hold strong is a theme Aaron touches on in this poem he wrote for his town. Bare cottonwood swaying, and one thought flows from the other like silent children walking through loud kitchens. That recurring ending, a misdirected river which always ends up where it should, coming and going in a town where people always return. The Llano's edge, the line between us and the stars we think we see at night. A misdirected river which always ends up where it should, coming and going in a town where people always return. I too am from a small community where people leave and come back, leave and come back. For ranching communities, the biggest threat is out-migration. It's kids deciding the work is too hard or the pay too little and heading off in search of big lights, big cities or kids who grow impatient with cowboy culture because they recognize it's a snake eating its own tail. And to survive, it has to look hard at its own dysfunction. But so far, it hasn't had the gumption. I can tell you this, though. When you leave your hometown, you always feel like you're wandering. That someday, somehow, you'll find your way back home. It's a labyrinth. It's on an evening with Aaron's dad, Alfonso. I'm able to see it this way. At the age of 83, he's spearheading a community effort to build a prayer labyrinth outside the oldest church in Colorado, Our Lady of Guadalupe. The one where the donkey wouldn't budge, so they built there. 
Alfonso and his wife joined a church group that came up with the idea, but they didn't have enough money to realize their dream. They had $50,000, but that wasn't enough to buy the adobe bricks and ship them over the mountains. So one night I wake up at about 2 o'clock in the morning and I says, my great-great-grandfather built a house I was born in out of adobe. So why can't we? So I got this idea about doing the adobes ourselves. Since I didn't know anything about adobes, I started looking to people, old timers. And I went and asked this guy for advice and he told me that- The old timer's like two days older than him. <laughs> well, the one of them is 90. He's 90 now. This is the one that really helped me. So I went and talked to this old timer and he says, well, he says, you're gonna have to have 30% clay and 70% sand. Fill a bottle up, a jar of water, put the dirt that you're gonna use, and if it goes down, the, the sand goes down to the bottom and the clay stays on top. So Alfonso started making adobe bricks like his great-great-grandfather used to and got a crew of locals together to start building the walls of a full-scale maze. Even though it isn't quite finished, Alfonso takes me out to walk around it. We go in through the gate under a sign. And I know you understand what it says up there, right? Pobladores, that's... Okay, el santuario de los pobladores. Pobladores are settlers and the sanctuary mm -hmm. the, of the settlers, if you translate that. Ah. So well, we're dedicating it to our settlers here that came here. The original pilgrims, his ancestors. We start walking the path. Along the way, Alfonso shows me where each of the five stations will be located, where pilgrims can stop and pray in a little cubby with a bronze religious image inside. You come on, and then, and then each one of them has its own where you pray to, to Mary, okay? Yeah. You go, and you're coming. I had to look it up, the spiritual significance of labyrinths. They've been used by societies all over the world for over 4,000 years. The idea is they take you on a journey within, to your center, to God. Oh, here, here's number here's two. the number two. Okay. Uh-huh. And so you'd so you, again you, you can uh, stop you pray and pray. number two, okay? Yes. You recite number two. Then you come again. Well, you know what it means, right? No, tell me. When you go into a labyrinth, the only way out is more or less where you begun. Kind of like our home communities, ranching kids from rural places all over the West. We can't wait to leave. But then it's a long, prodigal journey to find our way back again. And when we return, we aren't the same. We're transformed. Yeah. We'll be right back. If you are liking what you're hearing, and actually, hey, even if you don't, we would love to hear about it. 
take a moment right now to leave a rating or review on your podcast app. It'll help new listeners discover the modern West so that we can keep bringing you stories about the evolving identity of the American West. Hey, thanks, y'all. The idea that the cowboy might go extinct started eating away at Scotty Ratliff. But then he got the idea to start the Wyoming Cowboy Hall of Fame to remember the nearly lost art of the cowboy. Guys like Charlie Fenton, one of Scotty's childhood heroes. I mean, this guy, this guy could do things with, on a horse that, that nobody should be able to do. He just had that touch and he, he was like, it was like watching an ice skater. You know, he just, he just was smooth and fine and his horses did everything he wanted. It, Charlie worked for an oil pipeline and rode a horse 30 miles one way, switched horses, then rode 30 miles back every day. Now that's what you call a rugged individual. But even Charlie got a job off the ranch to make ends meet. Even back then, the signs of the cowboy's demise were showing up. Lately though, I'm told the cowboy has been riding on back home. had asked me five to ten years ago, I was very concerned that the young people growing up on a ranch were all going off somewhere else. We met Jim McGagna back in the first episode. He's with the Wyoming Stock Growers Association. Today, I'm pleased to see the number of young people. They may go off for a while. They may experience life in the city. But the combination of what's happening in our larger cities, wanting a, a comfortable place to raise a family, have a good education, is, is inspiring more and more of them to return to the ranch. There was lots of hope that the pandemic would help rural communities by giving all those kids who've long wanted to move home a chance to try to work remotely from their hometowns. Jim says he's hearing more stories about that scenario actually panning out. And he says when those young people return, they're also more willing to innovate. When I grew up in ranching, which was several decades ago, the old saying used to be, the best way to be a successful rancher is to have an oil well in the middle of your ranch. That's still true today, but there's more opportunities. It might be an oil well or a gas well. It might be a wind farm. It might be a hunting recreational opportunity to allow people to come onto your ranch and do things there. Today, it's even might be getting paid for uh, ranching practices that result in greater carbon storage in the soil. Like the variety of activities that a rancher can engage in that to become an alternate source of revenue to not in lieu of ranching, but to support ranching and continue to make it viable is growing by the day. And I suppose there's some people who might be like, who cares if the cowboy disappears over the horizon and never returns? I mean, we have heard lots this season about all the problems with ranching. How livestock have displaced bison and indigenous people, the environmental damage on public lands, the climate warming gases cattle produce. Yeah, it's all true. But there's also two sides to every coin. The fact is, the American West isn't just public lands. In a lot of states, a good third of the land is privately owned, mostly by ranchers. Judith Schwartz, she's the author of Cows Can Save the Planet, 
She says we need to make room for a new generation of ranchers at the table. Ranchers have an incredibly powerful role to play, that ranchers are managing large landscapes. So when they are managing those appropriately, then those landscapes will rebound and improve and help us be more resilient, help help communities around them be more resilient in the face of drought, help communities around them be more protected against flooding. Before he passed away, I went out to visit Alan Kirkbride on his ranch on Horse Creek. And he told me this really important thing that's stuck in my head. Really, in the bigger picture, I'm the caretaker here. And can I leave it as well or better than I found it? That, that's, I think if I do, I've done well. And Alan did leave his ranch better than he found it. He didn't ride off on his horse. He got in his truck and drove to the city and fought to stop groundwater drilling that would drain the springs and creeks on his land. Temple Grandin says it's the small, family-sized ranchers like Alan that are the best at thinking outside the box. Because if you do grazing right, you can improve the land. If you do grazing wrong, you can wreck land. Now the thing is, small guys tend to be the ones that innovate, the small operators. Every industry, little guys innovate. Uh, there's some people now growing a cover crop, and then they'll uh, graze cattle on that cover crop, and then do corn and soy. But Temple says right now, these innovators don't have what they need to change ranching practices. First of all, there's a lot of young people getting interested in things like regenerative agriculture, but they can't get land. And then there's a lot of land getting bought up on, you know, somebody says, well, let's just, you know, just have wildlife on that, nothing else. But I think we've got to have some really serious issues on, we have all, it's 20% of the whole earth all around the world. And there's places in the world where grazing land has been really wrecked. 20% of the earth is prime grazing land, Temple says. But that land could be ruined if the innovators aren't given the resources they need to manage those lands properly. And here's the thing. With real estate sky high in the West, it's not a rugged individualist who's going to reform ranching. It's a posse. You know, that band of vigilantes that get together in the old Western movies and race out to save the day? Like this one in the 1966 film Ride in the Whirlwind. Three men coming this way. What are they, Hag? Is that all you've seen? Well, three is all I've seen. Little figure than no posse. Usually they were up to no good. But that same urge to band together is still alive and well. That's what Rod Miller told me recently. I met up with him at a coffee shop in Cheyenne. There may be no more iconic cowboy than Rod Miller. His family homesteaded outside Rollins in the Dakota Territory in 1867. He grew up throwing hay bales and mending fence on the family ranch. Rod is so quintessential that in his youth, he actually appeared in a Marlboro Man ad in Playboy magazine. Listen while I tell you a story, the tale of the Marlboro brand. It came out of Richmond, Virginia one day and spread clear across the land. 
I saw that you were in a Marlboro Man uh, commercial. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about how that came about. And uh, we traded horses with uh, uh, one of the original Marlboro Man. You, you wouldn't mistake his face. What they really wanted was a place with white sand and water. And that's the uh, our shoreline of, of Seminole Reservoir is all white sand and water. And they wanted to gallop horses through the surf and get the sun glinting off the water droplets and the sand. And, and, and that's what we did for two days. Just ran these poor fucking horses back and forth. And they shot 35,000 rolls of film. Daryl sent me the copy of Playboy that had had the thing in it, and that's where you can barely see it. It's all fuzzy back there. You're you're just like a, you're just kind of a cowboy. Part shoot. of the landscape, yeah. like a sagebrush. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. Did you get paid big bucks for this? I got paid thirty-five bucks a day. Um, I got a hundred bucks a day for the horses. Rod looks nothing like a Marlboro man. Under his cowboy hat, he sports long white hair and a long white beard and two braids down his chest. I met Rod way back in the 90s when he owned a really great bookstore in Cheyenne. But he's moved on since then. A few years back, he made it into another gentleman's magazine. GQ interviewed him when he ran for Congress against Liz Cheney. These days, I make sure to always read his punditry on Wyoming politics. He's hilarious, yes, but Rod may have an understanding of the cowboy iconography like no other, because he definitely rode away from his past only to reemerge transformed. For instance, he's not starry-eyed about the great individualist. The, the people that succeeded here were, they, they didn't do it for the common good. They were in it for themselves, and they were driven to succeed, and they did. Now, that rugged individualism is part and parcel of Wyoming, the West, whatever. But, but so is the idea of community. Rod says you can't be dualistic about the cowboy. He's not either an individualist or a collaborator. He's both and. There's an old saying that in Wyoming, neighbor is a verb that you, you, know, you can fight with, with your, the next rancher over, over water or grazing or fences, whatever. But if there's like a wildfire or a natural disaster, you help him save his ranch and he'll come do the same for you. That's not the antithesis of rugged individualism. I think, I think it's probably a logical outgrowth of it. A logical outgrowth because it's an unwritten clause when you sign up to live cheek to jowl with Mother Nature. You gotta reckon a day will come when you'll need a helping hand. It might be this push and pull that keeps the cowboy myth from becoming truly nihilistic. Allowed full rain, there'd be no urge to stop the nuclear waste from polluting the town's wells, no urge to stop the depletion of groundwater, no will to keep the climate from frying our beloved landscape. Aaron Abeda embodies this push-pull dichotomy perfectly, both deeply individualistic and a committed servant to his community. He's not just mayor. He also started his own school, the Justice and Heritage Academy. 
So this is the main room, okay. right? So all the students at one point or another will be in this room. And then this is for our elementary kids. And we only have five of them. So this is their room, hence the little chairs. Yeah. Okay. Adorable. Yeah. And, um, He's showing me around the school, housed in a little building behind the St. Augustine Church in Antonito. Our calculators, all the math stuff that we have. Right. It's all dumpster dive. All this is dumpster dive. <laughs> yeah. That TV stand that doesn't have a TV on it, that's dumpster dive. Uh -huh. Ironically, that shitty TV isn't. <laughs> the school is nothing fancy, but the ideas behind it are fancy. Aaron co-directs the school with his wife, Michelle Trujillo, who's a trained educator. Aaron says the two of them have been dreaming of opening this school for almost 30 years. But when their daughter reached school age, it became imperative. There was a school in town, but it wasn't filling the needs of local families. When we started the school, there was like 140 kids from Montanito that went to a different district. And so we thought, well... How can we grow community if the kids are leaving their community, even if it's just for school? Let's, let's finally do it. Let's do our school and see how many we can keep. So, I mean, our first year we had seven. Our second year we had 14. Third year we had uh, 28. And this year we have 38. So we're You're growing. growing. Aaron says the idea is to get those kids to stay in their community by teaching them their own culture and language. Getting kids to return home is critical for this community because here's the thing, Antonito's kids have a very unique heritage. For instance, the Spanish that they speak in the San Luis Valley isn't what you learn in College Spanish 101. It's what's known as heritage Spanish. Which is this really cool synthesis of Spanish, 18th century Castilian Spanish, Nahuatl, French, and English, and probably thrown in there just for a good measure, some other indigenous languages, uh, Navajo and Ute as well. Oh, and Arabic, I forgot about Arabic too. So you have all of these different influences and they find themselves in one place, general location, Northern New Mexico, Southern Colorado. That's because this region was a crossroads for generations of Pueblo cultures, French trappers, railroad workers, conquistadors, you name it. But Aaron says speaking heritage Spanish around traditional Spanish speakers can lead to confusion. And Puebla to us is a frying pan. And if you go and you say frying pan anywhere else in the Spanish speaking world, I would say probably 99% of them would call it a sartén. And sartén is what should be taught in school, but we wouldn't teach sartén necessarily, other than tell them that sartén is a puela. Puela is actually French. Um, so to us, calzones are pants, but to the rest of the Spanish-speaking world, calzones are underwear. So we grew up calling them calzones, so I go over to whatever locale and I say, I need to go get some calzones, and everybody starts giggling <laughs> to me. I'm just saying I'm going to go buy some pants or something, right? But he doesn't teach heritage Spanish in isolation. They also learn why it's an issue of justice to protect their culture and language. Everything is inf infused with environmental justice, racial justice, food justice, and uh, social justice. Mm -hmm. Did I say that one already? Anyway, those four, yes. those four pillars. Yeah. So even though we're teaching science or math or whatever, we try to infuse everything with food justice or social justice, whatever is applicable to what we're working on, mm. right? So now with life cycles, 
you know, we're getting a lot of environmental justice and a lot of food justice in that. So our goal is to raise our own food. So today's lunch, we grew ourselves. We still well, have to go to the store, but... Mm -hmm, sure. But well, what did we, you have for lunch? So for lunch, we had tomatoes and salad from our own garden. Um, we had, uh, I guess the tortillas we didn't grow, uh, bean burritos <laughs> mm -hmm. and salsa. And then we had vegetables on, on the side of the salad. And the kids helped grow that? Yeah, so we have our own garden. We have our own composting. Eventually, we'd like to have our own animals so we could be totally self-sustaining. Aaron says the reason families are sending kids off to other school districts is because in the rural West, we aren't instilling a pride of place. Growing up in North Park, Colorado, we never learned about the indigenous people who hunted our mountains or the silver miners who settled there. We never visited our heritage sites. I didn't visit the teepee rings on the mountain ridges or our ghost towns until I was an adult. Kids at this school take lots of field trips. Well, yeah, so like when I was a kid, my idea of success was fleeing, right? <laughs> Some sort of exodus was equated with success. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of places are that way, small towns in particular. But we never learned about, you know, the history of our community. Uh, we never learned about how important our ancestors were and how much work they did to essentially found our community. Essentially, there was nothing tethering us to us, to this community, right? So we just try and teach them those things, right? And this village, this town, founded by, when it was founded, so that they take pride in it. Maybe that cowboy is riding away because no one gave him a map for how to get back home. No one ever told him, hey, you're the hero of your own story. Don't forget, dude, you've got to come full circle. What do you think your hope is for your daughter and for her generation in this community? And, you know, what is it that you're hoping that you maybe are helping to build and to preserve? Resilience. Mm -hmm. Liberation. Pride. But that they see themselves as powerful as they create their own heroic imperative, right? and that they are the heroes of their own oral tradition, of their own story. And that fleeing Antonito, fleeing your home, fleeing your community is not success. That success is returning to your community and assisting others with their own liberation, with their own resilience, with their own pride, with their own heroic imperative. Maybe asking kids to become the heroes of their own stories sounds a lot like a sales pitch for a new generation of rugged individualists. But Aaron would argue that the hero and their community, they're one and the same. There's no separating them. Like Rod Miller says, neighbor is a verb. If a new generation of ranchers can clear out the ghosts from the closet, we can form a new kind of posse, an interdependent way of life that could very well shape the future of the American West. Welp, this was the final installment of The Great Individualist. But we have a bonus episode in the works, so keep a lookout for that. Thanks so much for your support this season. 
Plus, we've got a new series jam-packed full of history and inspiring characters in the works. So be sure to follow us on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a thing. Do you have a hero's journey story of leaving and returning to your home in the rural West? Please reach out and share it with us on social media at Modern West Pod or email me at themodernwestpod at gmail.com. I'm Melody Edwards. Tennessee Watson is our story editor. Our sound designer is Charles Fournier. Noah Greenspan is assistant producer. Anna Rader is our marketing coordinator. Thanks also for help from Sarah Ann Leverett and Diane Berner. To see Ana Castro's photos of Alfonso's Labyrinth and the Justice and Heritage Academy, visit our website at themodernwest.org. By the way, you should definitely make a pilgrimage to visit that labyrinth. It's now open for visitors. Our theme song is by Screen Door Porch. The Modern West is a production of PRX and Wyoming Public Media. One of our goals is to get a dialogue flowing about the stories that we're telling. We're hoping that you'll join the conversation. So connect with us on social media and let us know what your thoughts are, whether you agree with what you're hearing or not. We're at Modern West Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. That's Modern West Pod.